You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, the NTCER and employment contracts, an update presented by Mr. Glenn Wallace. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respects to their elders, past, present and their families. Welcome everybody. My name is Glenn Wallace. I'm the CEO of GP Supervisors Australia and you're joining a session on the NTCER and employment contracts, an update. So out of this session, you're going to have an understanding of what conditions you can and cannot contract your registrar to, understand the most common errors practices make and how to avoid them, understand what happens when errors are made, and be able to identify the practice management, personal actions, events and circumstances that need to be managed. People, that is the topic of today's session. I know that we put the NTCER and employment contracts as the topic, but in actual fact, what you are managing every single day are people and the risk that is associated with that. People are the single greatest risk to your business and so the biggest risk is to do nothing. Importantly, this process, just as with business, everything is a development process. So where you are today will not be where you are tomorrow and have no fear to ask the questions that you need of GPSA when you need that advice. Expect that you will make mistakes at different stages and we will certainly provide as much advice as we possibly can as we progress through. At the end of the day, it's all about relationships. In business as in life, the greatest risk is doing nothing. As with everything that we do in flagging the risks, we want you to enjoy and have a positive relationship with your employees and in particular your registrars as a training practice. So by all means, the representation of risk throughout this session is not about taking away the honeymoon from you, but it's about preparing you for divorce. So it's about managing the risk and making sure that you have the tools and the mechanisms in place to ensure that if something does go wrong down the track, that you do have an investigation, that you have done all of the necessary steps to meet your statutory obligations throughout that process. So I want to have a chat about meeting statutory requirements because I think this is a particular area that um, sometimes organisations overlook when I'm talking to them over the phone. Obviously, when we're taking on registrars, we have a supervisor in our practice and the supervision for GPT-1 and 2 or PR-1 and 2 require a specified amount of supervision. That's not the same as employment supervision. And it's really important for you to understand the difference between employment supervision and clinical supervision because they are extremely different and the documentation that goes with each will likely be different as well. So I want you to ask yourself in this moment, have you documented what training you did in onboarding your staff? Did you provide them with their fair work statement? Did you provide and display an injury at work flyer from your workers' compensation insurer, which is required under law? Have you got an occupational health and safety notice board somewhere in your building that staff can find the information that they need? Have you got fire wardens and first aid officers trained? Now, we may well say that we've got a clinic full of doctors. That does not mean that somebody who is working within your building who is not clinically trained understands where they need to go for first aid. So it should not be overlooked either and communicated. Have you trained your staff in first aid procedure and protocol, trained staff in bullying and harassment? Bullying and harassment is a significant one because it's very difficult to defend insofar as bullying and harassment is in the eye of the beholder. And in particular, there is a difference between reasonable management action and bullying and harassment, and often employees will misunderstand the two. The question is, have you actually trained your staff 
to understand what is and is not bullying and harassment and what is and is not reasonable management action and complaints handling processes. Have you conducted a fire drill in the last 12 months? Have you got up-to-date fire equipment? Trained staff in manual handling? Do you have boxes that are heavy in high locations or low locations under desks? Have you checked that all of your workstations, including home, are ergonomically correct? Is this documented? And have you got a complaints and grievances and whistleblowers policy in place? These are all statutory requirements that should WorkSafe come knocking or Fair Work come knocking or any sort of claim in the workplace be lodged. These are all of the places where your business can come unstuck. There are plenty of resources that are available via GPSA and also via your local workers' compensation insurer, but also the local regulator in your state and obviously Fair Work. When we're talking about dealing with performance, this is a framework that is used within GPSA, within our own staff, and something that we recommend. It's something that we've borrowed from clinical supervision frameworks that you can use very explicitly. Now, it's important that you establish with your staff from the get-go the regularity with which they're going to engage in employment supervision, the format, such as a table that is represented on the screen, and important that you document everything. Important that your employees understand that everything will be documented and that they get a copy of what you and they have contributed to that performance session. Performance sessions need not be negative experiences, but they are absolutely a management of risk. So I'm going to go through each of the quadrants. First, you've got the green, which is about the positives. It's important to document what an employee is doing well. Find out what they think they're doing well, what they're enjoying about their job, what are some of the positives about the way that they're interacting with the team. That might be your perspective or another person's perspective within the team. What are the positives of their work output? The blue quadrant underneath is really about anything that they're unsure about, any frustrations that they might have. Is there anything about their work that they do not feel they're adequately trained in? This is really key because if you are challenged at a later stage and an employee claims that they were not appropriately trained, you will have documented throughout every single month whether or not they believed that they were adequately trained. Is there anything about their day-to-day interactions which they're concerned about and feeling frustrated by? So that's about starting to flag any social-emotional issues that might need some assistance. There might be need for some resilience training. There also might need to be an awareness of any employee assistance program that might be available within your workplace. And are there any directions that have been given that they're unclear about? The amber section is really about anything that needs attention. That's from your perspective as an employer. So anything that was not completed to the expected standard. So is there further training required? You can repeat the training. It's an opportunity for you to restate the expected standard and for all of that to be documented every single month. The red is specifically dealing with anything that is likely to come up later within an investigation. And they're prompts to make sure that you've asked all of the questions and or dealt with anything. So are there any safety concerns? Are they walking around the office in bare feet, for example? Bullying and harassment. Have they got any concerns about bullying and harassment? Have you got concerns about the bullying and harassment? Complaints. Do they have any complaints within the workplace? Are they aware of the employee assistance program? So are you providing support for their social and emotional welfare? Are there any interpersonal issues that you need to be aware of or that they need to be aware of? Anything personal going on that work adjustments need to be made for and any health conditions which need to be managed in order to prevent exacerbation in the workplace? So now we get on to the NTCER and what it does not cover. Registrars working in community-controlled organisations, registrars employed under an existing award, 
Australian Defence Force registrars, registrars completing a remediation term and obviously bad behaviour. Obviously, policy is written for the 1% that might do the wrong thing, but wonder never ceases that despite having a policy in place, there will always be a loophole and you can never cater for absolutely everything. I want you to have a think about your registrar's journey to your door, which really can give you a heads up on just how likely there are things that could go wrong with that particular relationship. So your registrar has broad experience, which is great. Their salary is increasing exponentially with experience. But importantly, they don't have mastery of a lot of the concepts within their education at this stage. They're not fellowed. They're not considered a specialist at this stage. They've come from an environment in the hospital where they've been very low on the decision-making tree, transitioning to very high. So they're inexperienced with power and they're likely anxious. So they're starting a new job. They've potentially moved into a new home. There's fear of the unknown. They've never had to negotiate a contract ever before in their lives. And these are some of life's greatest stressors. But importantly, what they're taught throughout their medical training and throughout their junior doctor years within the hospital, it's to always look like you know what you're talking about. And this is really important because they're about to go into an office on their own without direct supervision behind a closed door and a patient is not necessarily going to be aware that a registrar is somebody who is still training and is not yet a specialist as the other specialists within your practice. So when we put all of those things together, we have a situation where a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing, growing sense of entitlement, insecurity, general anxiety, inexperience with power, anxious, stressed, hospital trained to fake it until you make it, professionalism is still very much under construction. And we have potentially a lack of insight and self-workplace awareness and consequences. We have worked in uber-controlled environments from a work industrial relations perspective, and that is often not the case and not reflected within the general practice environment in quite the same way as lots of general practices are small businesses and have very different processes and certainly not the same resources as lawyers and industrial relations experts and work health and safety officers, etc., in those larger corporate acute hospital settings. So it's important to have a conversation about professionalism and what is meant, and that's all part of your induction process. Do you share what it is that you believe to be professionalism? Do you have a talk about the attire that is expected of them to wear? Do you talk about their punctuality? Do you talk about submission of timesheets? Do you talk about coming back from lunch breaks on time? And do you talk about the mechanisms around how these things will be discussed as they become issues and become known? Often when we start talking about these things with our employees, it becomes abundantly clear that people find it really easy to pinpoint what is not professional or what is unprofessional, but often they have a more difficult time reaching agreement exactly around what professionalism is. You should all be aware by now that your registrar must be contracted as an employee. So this is because of the criteria that's set by the ATO. Under that criteria, the definition of a contractor is somebody who supplies their own plant and equipment, which a registrar does not. They can't subcontract their work insofar as they can't decide one day that they're going to send another employee in their stead on site. They get paid on invoice, which tends not to be the case within general practice. They're independent, meaning they're not a trainee or apprentice. Obviously, a registrar is a trainee. Commercial risk is retained by the contractor. Obviously, there is some risk for a registrar, but the reason that registrars have peppercorn cost associated with their medico-legal defence is because 
the most likely outcome if something goes wrong within their employment with you or with a particular patient, then it's likely to be identified that the supervision that was provided was not appropriate to their level of skill. And so therefore, the supervisor is likely to be brought into that class action as well. They don't have a lot of control over their work. Basically, the environment is making requests based on who makes their appointments over the phone and or over an online booking system. And they're paid for a result achieved based on a quote provided. And most registrars would not typically provide a quote. So what should you be explicitly negotiating and stating in your contract? Well, there should be standard hours, working days. It should be super clear what weekend work requirements, late night work requirements, on-call arrangements and remuneration, percentage payment cycles, annual leave, what SIP and PIP payments will be paid and when, terms of probation. So this is something that is often not included in contracts. But registrars are absolutely in a position where they are working within your organisation for less than six months or even less than 12 months in most cases for small practices that there is a need for a probation period. Also termination and a requirement for them to adhere to all company policies. Pre-existing injuries and previous work cover claims is something that is allowed for under many jurisdictions. So this is, in fact, in many jurisdictions, if they don't disclose that they've had a pre-existing injury or a previous work cover claim and an employer doesn't make, therefore, appropriate adjustments for that particular employee, then they won't have access to the same level of workers' compensation insurance as they might have if they had have disclosed. So you'll find in the GPSA employment contract template a statement that is there for them to document any personal injury claims and pre-existing injuries that might exist. I'm going to have a quick look at some questions. When a registrar has a full-time contract and changes to part-time, should they be given a new contract? That would be certainly advisable to reissue the contract and have them sign. Make sure that you've got documentation that they've actually accepted the terms. So just having some sort of agreement or an email from you to them is not likely to meet the documentation requirements in terms of satisfying that they've agreed to the new terms. And so ensuring that you've got something in writing that they've signed is really important. We've also got another question here. Can I ask my registrar to use clock-on, clock-off system and an iPad to record time in practice? Of course you can. You, as the employer, are able to implement any time recording mechanism you would like to engage in. They should have the opportunity to understand and see what that mechanism is, but there's no impediment to you employing that. Okay, so the poll here I can see is just about reached completion. The thing that most people have found difficult uh, payment calculations. So 36% of respondents found that percentage calculations was a problem, followed by educational release has been a problem, and then followed by SIP and PIP payments, annual leave, and full-time versus part-time. So thank you for your participation there. Okay, so as you can see from that full range of potential issues and frequency, you're not alone in the issues that you're experiencing. And the issues that come through to GPSA are often um, by the time the wheels have fallen off. You're all extremely good at dealing with issues, um, clearly, because the phones are not always running off the hooks. But what we do find is that the common issues are very common and the answers are also just as common. Um, and these can all be managed and we'll deal with some of these as we progress through the session today. Okay, so um, for those that were concerned about leave or have had trouble with leave, 
Make your payroll system your best friend. Leave is absolutely pro rata. So if you've got a registrar that is working part-time, they're not entitled to the full four weeks that is allowed under the NTCER. They're entitled to the pro rata, unless you've contracted otherwise. So you need to be really clear about what has been written into their contracts. Up to six months pro rata can be taken in advance. That's with regard to sick leave, not necessarily annual leave. You can provide pro rata in advance. But be clear that if they leave early and there's no agreement in place to deduct an overpayment, then you might find it difficult to actually get those overpaid leave funds back. Any unused leave must be paid out and does not attract superannuation. So there is, I guess, a financial benefit to paying out annual leave unused at the end of the contract. But you will end up spending more than if you had your registrar complete their leave during their employment. Leave accrued in GPT or PRT1, but not taken until term two, if you're having them for the full first year. By the time they actually take the leave, has to be paid at the higher rate. So that is a potential risk and would, have, would cost you more as well. It's not necessarily a problem unless you find it a problem and it's just something that you need to manage. You can't unilaterally send somebody on leave unless there is something in the contract and unless there is business closure. So here at GPSA, we have business shut down between Christmas and New Year and the first business days, the day after New Year's holiday. That's allowed and that leave is automatically accepted because it's a company policy. It's written into all employees' contracts and it's actually the business shutting down and that's allowed under fair work. All other leave, however, is really a negotiation. And so you need to make sure that you're not unreasonably refusing the leave that is requested of a registrar. And equally, a registrar can't unilaterally take leave whenever they would like as well. You need to make sure that it meets the business's needs and you can't force your registrar to take their annual leave either. Now, the reason we talk about leave and public holidays and different things like that is because just after Easter and just after Christmas is the most common time for phone calls. And most commonly, the phone call is about my registrar's just knocked on my door and said, listen, I haven't been paid for my public holidays. Now, most often than not, in fact, I can't remember a case where a registrar wasn't paid for their public holidays. It's about how you're paying your registrars. So if your registrar has earned above the base and has received a percentage, then by virtue of them receiving a percentage, they've already exhausted their base salary, as in they've earned more than their base salary. And if they've earned more than their base salary, then the, any public holidays that fell during that period have absolutely been honoured. There is nothing more to pay once you are onto a percentage. Remembering that you have to pay your registrar either the base or the percentage, whichever is greater at any interval that you've agreed to, but not less than every 13 weeks. Importantly, you use your payroll system because for a 38-hour week, you want to make sure that your public holidays, your educational release, anything that might be in that week is paid at the base rate as it's allowed under the NTCER. So if your registrar's earned their percentage, there's nothing more to pay. Just don't forget that you are required to pay the superannuation on top. The common error that's made is that because we pay our other service providers within the practice on a percentage basis, that lots of us think that using exactly the same process for this doctor, this registrar, is going to be right. In actual fact, your registrar needs to be paid consistent with your practice nurse and your admin reception staff. 
not consistent with the other service providers within your organisation because they are absolutely different. Educational release is an important one and it's only payable if a registrar is rostered to work. So if your registrar is rostered to work four hours, then absolutely during that day you're required to pay that four hours, but you're not required to pay a registrar that was not rostered for the additional hours if that is educational release that's going longer than that four hours or educational release that has occurred on a day that they would not normally be rostered. The only caveat to that is around fatigue management. So within the NTCER, there is a requirement that you provide a day in lieu. So in a circumstance where you've got a registrar that has compressed their hours into a four-day working week and have one day off, but they otherwise would work a 38-hour week just compressed into four days, you are still required to provide them with a time in lieu day either side of that particular educational release. And the reason for that is because if you've got somebody that is working four days, compressed, uh, 38-hour week, it means that they're doing exactly the same as a registrar that has spread their workload across five days and then in addition are expected to fit their educational release in there as well. So generally speaking, although registrars might like having a compressed work week, longer days, it's not great from a performance management perspective, from a fatigue management perspective, and even from a learning perspective to have longer days. So at the end of the day, it's a business decision, but we wouldn't recommend it. Admin time is another thing that we've dealt with in the last couple of weeks. So if a registrar commences at your practice, you need to make sure that they have up to two and a half hours per week, which is under the agreement of the NTCER and part of their ordinary hours. And it's there primarily to assist with patient notes. So it's equivalent to 15 minutes at the end of every session, so just before lunch and just before the end of the day. And it's their opportunity to review results and to deal with anything whilst they don't have a patient sitting in front of them. It can be managed by not booking patients into those sessions and having them blocked out within their booking sheet. And importantly, Having made that available to them, if the registrar is not able to get through their patient load, it's not that you haven't provided the admin time, it's that they haven't been able to manage their time effectively with their patients. That then becomes a performance discussion, not a compliance discussion with the RTO insofar as you haven't provided them with their admin time. It doesn't mean that a registrar is eligible for two and a half hours early mark on a Friday or two and a half hours late mark on any of the days of the week at all. And we've seen plenty of those circumstances as well. Super, you must pay super on both the base and the percentage top up. And you should all be aware that superannuation guarantee by the government is rising to 10% on the 1st of July, 2021. So if you haven't had that in the back of your mind, that is looming large at this point. And you need to be making steps towards ensuring that your registrars in their, the current term start to receive the new rate as in from the 1st of July. Some find the 44.79 plus super, the 49.05 confusing with the NTCER. Essentially, you don't need to worry about it. The figure, the figure that you need to worry about is the 44.79. So the reason that you need to not use the 49.05 is because the super doesn't get paid to the registrar. The super gets paid to the superannuation provider. So you need to make sure that you've squared away and given the registrar a minimum of 44.79% um, and that they have their government guaranteed superannuation paid in accordance with the NTCER and the ATO.
The only other thing that I would say in relation to superannuation is there are some practices that lump it all together that say we're going to pay you 60% and in that is your super, is your workers' compensation, is all sorts of different things. It then becomes a challenge to unpick exactly what that means. So I implore you, please be specific. This is the percentage of your MBS billings, hip and zip, that is going to be paid to you. And then obviously you'll be paid your superannuation at the government guarantee super rate on top. After hours, it's really clear in the NTCER that the same percentages arise as for ordinary hours. Hourly rates for ordinary hours are the same as ordinary hours in line with the most common conditions once fellowship is achieved. So a GP working as a service provider post-fellowship is not going to be paid more, typically, depending on the hours that they're actually working. They will receive the percentage of the services that they provide. And if those services attract a higher rate after hours, then great. But that doesn't change the hourly rates within the NTC hour that are required to be paid to the registrar. We've got a poll now. Do you pay your registrar's percentage based on billings or receipts? Now, typically, stakeholders find these queries interesting because it's interesting to see what you do compared to other stakeholders in this space. So I'd like to invite you to fill in exactly what you do in the present environment. Okay, so I can see now out of the responses that we've got the majority of people that are paying on receipts. So 65% of you are paying on receipts and 35% of you are paying on the basis of billings. So that's an interesting result. Last time we did this, it was roughly 50-50, but I'm going to tell you why people might be doing that with regards to paying on receipts, not billings now. So people who choose billings, the benefit to them in terms of the practice are that the payments are finalised by the time the registrar leaves the practice. So by the time they actually leave, all money has been paid. There's nothing more to think about as a business. The pitfall to that is that you may end up paying monies that you never actually receive. So if you've got a workers' compensation assessment, et cetera, that has been completed, there may be a fee, there may be an invoice, it may not ever get paid, but you've already paid out those monies. So not only did you not, as an organisation, get to retain your percentage to help cover business costs, but you paid out money that you never, ever received either. The reason that people and a significant proportion of you pay on receipts is because you only pay the registrar the percentage of funds that you actually receive. So it doesn't include bad debts. So if you didn't receive it, it doesn't get paid to the registrar. The pitfall is that when your registrar leaves your organisation, you have a liability to pay them any unpaid monies for up to six months after they leave. And so when we're talking about payment statements in terms of provided to the ATO and those sorts of things, it can be a little bit messier. But in terms of risk benefit balancing, at the end of the day, you're not paying registrar for monies that you never did receive yourself. Okay, so we're going to get into some of the common issues that relate to today's session. Now, I want you to consider these issues and how you respond to these issues within your practice. And I always like to use and encourage curiosity. And the reason that we talk about curiosity here at GPSA is because you can't be curious and judgmental or curious and dismissive at the same time. So it allows you to effectively investigate exactly what is the issue and whether or not it's reasonable and what you might need to do as a practice. At the end of the day, if an investigation is launched, they're going to want to see exactly what you did about that particular issue if there was a complaint that was made. 
This is particularly relevant to the current environment. During COVID, there was lots of cases where our practices had a reduced number of patients and bookings and things like that. They were concerned about practice viability. And so just as in lots of other industries, there was conversations about whether or not we can continue to open the doors. And there is a provision within their work to stand down employees without pay. You would need to investigate that really carefully yourself and or use advisors like EmployShore or some other such service to be able to ensure that you didn't breach any fair work provisions. But we had a case last year where a practice really nobly had a conversation with their registrar and they identified that, look, we're in a position where even our service providers don't have enough patients and they're really not willing to give you the patients that they do have. So we're in a position to either stand down staff without pay or if you're interested in reducing your hours. The registrar allegedly agreed to reduce their hours. That occurred over the next six months. They worked varying hours throughout the period. Um, And then it wasn't until they left the practice that they launched legal action. So the problem here for this practice is that they reached a verbal agreement. All of the behaviour that took place between that verbal agreement and the completion of the term certainly indicated that the registrar was accepting. But when it came to it, the legal letter said, you're in breach of the contract that I have with you. You haven't paid me my base salary or percentage based on full-time hours. And so therefore, I expect this to be corrected forthwith, uh, lest I commence legal action. At the end of the day, The advice GPSA will give you in relation to these types of matters is it's very likely to cost you more to try and defend these things if you don't have a written agreement in place than what it is to resolve the issue. You should absolutely seek your own legal advice, but all I can suggest and implore you is that you absolutely take the time to document anything that you agree to with your registrar and or other employee. Okay, we've got another poll. Does your registrar work a 38-hour week? So 38 hours is full-time for clinical employment and payroll purposes. But as we know with the general practice workforce, if you look at the polls in terms of the number of people that have been trained as GPs across the last 20 years and the number of full-service equivalents of GPs, What's happening is the number that are being trained is going up and the number of full service equivalents is actually going down, meaning that our workforce is becoming more and more part time. So I can see from the poll that 60% of your registrars are working a 38 hour week and roughly 40% of respondents are saying that their registrars are working less than a 38 hour week. So that's really important to consider exactly how that's represented in the contracts that you've put in place. Do you have appropriate wording around pro rata? Do you have appropriate fatigue management? Have you considered how educational release is factored in? Have you had a conversation with your registrar about the fact that they will or will not be paid for educational release that falls on their day? These are all really important questions to have dealt with up front. Okay, so we've got a negotiation of registrar hours. Obviously, registrar signs a contract. You both believe that the registrar is contracted for full-time hours. The practice manager knows that it's 38 hours per week. The registrar knows this means it's 27 hours per week. Who's right? Well, it comes down to what's written into the contract. But what you'll find in college standards is that there's references to the registrar must, when they're um, on full-time training hours, 
must see a minimum of 27 clinical hours. And that's often the point of confusion for a registrar. And that's why it's important to have the conversation that 38 hours means that you're going to be in this practice for 38 hours. And that doesn't include unpaid lunch breaks. The other thing that you have to deal with is unrealistic expectations. And why we bring this up is because when you've got a registrar that's going to educational release back to their RTO or the likes, there's ample opportunity for a registrar to compare their lot in life with another registrar. And often it leads to unrealistic expectations. So they'll compare the percentage that the other registrar has been able to negotiate. They'll compare whether or not their educational release is being paid and any number of other conditions that may vary between your practice and another practice. Just because there's a variance doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong as an employer, but you should be aware that when they do come back to you, that they're likely to represent things as you've made a mistake. And that's a time to become super curious to get to the bottom of it and to seek any guidance that you possibly can from GPSA. Often we'll have practices that are told by registrars that, well, you know, during their negotiation phase that, well, I can go to this other practice and they'll give me 60% or my friend, the registrar down the road is getting 60%. I'm not going to come here if you don't make that demand. The trouble with that is you can seldom identify whether or not that is in fact true, which means that often you're competing with yourself for a higher and higher percentage. It also doesn't take into consideration all of the on-costs of employment. So when registrars are talking about percentages, it doesn't actually mean a great deal. A much more informative conversation that you can have with your registrar is how much do you need to earn in money terms for you to feel good about yourself or to meet your financial obligations, etc. Then I can tell you as a practice manager exactly the types of behaviours you're going to have to engage in to make that possible it puts the registrar on notice that actually their earning potential is in their own hands. A higher or a lower percentage of not very much is still not very much at the end of the day. And they need to be aware that haggling over a percentage is really a fool's errand. And what you can provide them as a practice is skills and experience in billing effectively, managing patients effectively, and how they can become good at the business of general practice. And that's, you know, teach a person how to fish and they'll never go hungry type domain. We've got another poll now. How do you currently pay your registrars? This is really about the frequency with which you're currently paying your percentage out. This is, again, another opportunity for you to see the frequency with which options are being employed. What we find is what we recommend is payment every 13 weeks. Often practices out of the goodness of their own heart will acquiesce to a registrar's request for fortnightly payments. And this is often makes sense from a practice perspective because you're paying other service providers their percentages every fortnight. But I can tell you now every single issue that crops up, once somebody has had a negative experience and they understand the benefit of 13 weeks, their practices tend to err towards a 13-week percentage top up rather than earlier intervals. So I'm looking at the polls now. They appear to, to be reasonably stable. Your base salary, uh, most common of the respondents here today is paid every 13 weeks. That's 33% of you, closely followed by the percentage paid each fortnight at 29%. So you can see how common those are the most common representations. There will be registrars that will negotiate alternately monthly or something different again. The challenge with anything less than 13 weeks is a registrar can make sure that they book their leave for the week following a percentage payment. 
which means that you've paid out the percentage and then they go on leave and they get their full base salary. The reason that we recommend being paid every 13 weeks is because, frankly, it's fairer for everybody concerned. So they receive a percentage of what has been generated rather than you running at a loss and paying out base rates when there's no income in there to offset it. Okay, we've got another case scenario. Practice manager in Tasmania based practice phones with the following scenario. Registrar has been working 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., four days a week. He'd like to change his hours to 11 till 8 and not take a break. Can you do it? Well, safe work requires that employees are given an unpaid break minimum every five hours. So typically, if you're working a regular day between nine and five, that's satisfied by a 30-minute lunch break in the middle of the day. And so most of us don't have to think any further of that. Soon as obviously you start extending days, then it becomes something that needs to be explicitly dealt with and controlled from your end. This is something that we've had recently. My GPT-3 registrar is blocking out 15-minute appointments at the end of each hour. So this registrar is in a booking cycle of 15-minute blocks. They're allowing three 15-minute blocks per hour and the fourth is being blocked out. Employees are not in a position to dictate their working terms. So it's important that that comes to a performance discussion and gets documented that you've given an appropriate and reasonable direction to the employee. Make sure that you do it privately and it's followed up and documented in writing as well. Continuation of the behaviour needs to be dealt with as a performance issue. And that's where it's important to separate the difference between an employee performance discussion and a supervision, clinical supervision performance discussion. They are very different. A practice manager in Queensland rings with the following scenario. My registrar has been overpaid sick and holiday leave and about to deduct it from the registrar's final pay. The question is, can you do it? The answer is, it depends, like most things. So have you got an agreement in place that allows you to deduct overpayment of sick and annual leave within the context of your contract? So is there something written in there? Have you reached a written agreement outside of the contract? If you don't have it in the contract, to be able to deduct and do you agree on the amount that has been overpaid. This is why it's so incredibly important to use a payroll system and to make sure that that's up to date and there's no question about what is owed. It's also a good reason why you shouldn't be allowing any employee to take paid leave before it's actually accrued. Obviously, registrars are entitled to use on an accrual basis before they've accrued their sick leave, but that doesn't apply to holiday leave. Now, that leads us on to payslips, and payslips represent confidence and trust, and it's really important that you understand the correlation between the two in that regard. Here's a payslip that has been represented in the past. Income is six hours at $50 an hour equals nothing. Income fees, 50%, 60.5 hours at a rate of minus $2.50, somehow equates to $4,515.13. Importantly, this is a spreadsheet that the figures were, in fact, correct when we looked at the background calculations. But the payslip was so far wrong that it damaged the registrar's trust. And anything that the practice came back with after this point really was not trusted by the registrar because if you can get it wrong the first time, why should I have any faith that you've gotten it right in the, the subsequent attempts? So make sure you use your payroll systems, make them your best friend, make sure that you're paying the 38 hours base salary every single week if your registrar is full-time and then deduct what you've already paid from the percentage top-up. 
So it's the deduction methodology. You're still paying the greater of the base or the percentage, but you make sure that you represent and pay your registrar into your payroll system. So there's no question that public holidays and those sorts of things have absolutely been paid. Admin time we've covered, so I'm not going to uh, cover again. Percentage variations and registrar talk we've also discussed, but make no mistake, there are all sorts of claims that can be made against an employer about why it is that I'm getting a lower percentage than another registrar. Don't let it become a gender discussion. Don't let it become really anything. If you stick with the NTCER and say we follow the NTCER, we pay 44.79%, we pay the government guarantee superannuation rate, there can be no other conversation around that. As soon as you start to fluctuate and deviate percentages, and importantly, you don't know what type of employee they're going to be until they've been in the practice. Gives you the opportunity to go back with a bonus if you have a registrar that you would like to keep and you're paying them the 44.79%, it gives you the opportunity before the end of their term to give them a bonus to try and encourage them to stay. If you've gone to the top end of town and provided them with a really high percentage, financially, it's not likely that you're going to be able to afford to pay them more to stay because you're already paying them really very high. The other risk is if you pay them 60% and you're paying your other service providers 60% and they're an employee, but your other service providers are not, when it comes to encouraging them to stay, you're really offering them less um, than what they've been on up until that point. So it's important to think a long-term game with this stuff and make sure that you manage the risks in those regards as well. Obviously, we come across this reasonably regularly as well. I'll just pay the percentage. They always earn more than the percentage in my practice. But what that misses is what was the accrued leave? How much do I need to be paying them for the accrued leave? Do we both agree how much has been accrued and how much needs to be paid? Everything's okay while everybody's happy. But as soon as somebody comes back to question what you've got down, it then becomes incredibly difficult to unpick and it will cost you more in the long run in terms of time to try and work out exactly what needed to be paid if you're not dealing with this in a payroll sense the way that we've uh, described. Okay, we've got a practice manager in a Melbourne-based practice. The registrar was full-time before going on maternity leave. Practice looked after her. She was welcomed back to the practice six months after returning to the practice. The practice discovered that the registrar has been paid for full-time hours but only working part-time. It was a $10,000 overpayment. The practice was trying to do the right thing by the registrar. The registrar turned around and said, it's your mistake, I'm not repaying the money. You can't deduct something from somebody's pay without their agreement, explicit agreement to do so. If you are using an external payment provider, it doesn't matter, you still have to have agreement. The external payment provider, as was the case in this regard, hadn't received any instructions that their pay was to be any different. And so therefore, the external payment provider said, well, that's your error. And so that's for you to deal with. So in most cases, GPSA are going to say to you, it's going to cost you more in terms of risk in trying to recoup this money than putting it down to a very expensive education. But that's why you need to make sure that your payroll contracts and everything are explicitly in place as you go. Okay, so you've got a practice principal and supervisor. My registrar has been working with me for almost a year. He's chopped and changed his hours throughout this time, all of which has been accommodated. He's just advised that he won't be working over the Christmas period, which is specifically stated in his contract, which he signed. The practice principal is no longer willing to be gracious about the registrar's behaviour and is wanting to terminate the contract early. Okay, all I'm going to say with regard to termination is beat on the employer's head. There are massive risks with termination and while there might be an agreement within the NTCER that either party can terminate a registrar with one week's notice, 
if your registrar offers you a resignation, accept it as the gift that it is, but you should not enter into a termination of a registrar lightly. You should refer to Fair Work, make sure that you've got all of your documentation in place before doing so. Practice management phones, there's been an overpayment for registrars. We've covered this off enough. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Essentially, if you've overpaid your registrar, it really falls to them to agree to have the money paid back. And the likelihood of that happening is pretty low. I want to talk about ambiguous language really quickly and the importance of stating exactly what you mean. If you've got a registrar that you know is going to have to work every single Friday, late nights, but you've written it into your contract that they have to work up to work a minimum of two Friday late nights every single week. In their mind, it's going to be, I'm going to be working a maximum of two Friday late nights every single week. In your mind, it's every single Friday. If you mean that it's going to be every single Friday, then put it in the contract like that. It's often the ambiguous language that trips people up. Double payments. We've also in the last month had practices that have been paying educational release in in addition to the 38 hours. That is a double payment. Their educational release is built into the 38 hours. And so you're not required to pay educational release on top of and public holidays on top of their 38 hour week. After hours, medical deputising services are particularly risky for you, so you should be aware of that. MDI National have previously said that if you approve your registrar to access those after hours MBS item numbers, you'll likely share the liability for any errors despite not being their supervisor in that employment. This is a little bit about termination. Obviously, there's ability to terminate employees within small organisations, so with less than 15 staff and the employee doesn't have access to unfair dismissal. Unfair is very different to unlawful dismissal and the performance framework that was provided earlier is really about dealing with and providing you with evidence around unlawful dismissal. So unlawful dismissal tends to be a claim that they've been dismissed because of discrimination or they've been dismissed for something that there's general protection in place for. So you can't dismiss an employee for making a complaint, for example. Now, the tricky part about the legislation is that there's a reverse onus of proof. So an employee can claim absolutely anything against the employer, and it's really what you can prove. So do you have the documentation to prove that there were issues, that those issues were addressed with the employee, and that reasonable management directions were not followed and appropriate warnings were given? really important that you take that on board because obviously while they may not have access to unfair dismissal, they absolutely will have access to unlawful dismissal. So you should not do that lightly. In terms of what GPSA can support you with, we have contract templates that are NTCER compliant available to you. There are frequently asked questions that have been provided to you as well. You can escalate, really, you need an escalation policy within your organisation, but you can escalate thereafter to the GPSA. The registrar can escalate to GPRA, but you should also keep your registered training organisation, regional training organisation in your patch aware of the issues as well. You don't want to be getting to the stage where you're requiring lawyers. Way too expensive. Now, thank you. We haven't gotten to all of the questions, but we absolutely will follow them up. It's absolutely the hour. We've run a little bit over time, so thank you very much. We'd like to acknowledge that GPSA is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Program. Without that funding, we wouldn't be able to make these presentations. Thank you very much for attending. I hope that you found that useful and informative. 
please don't hesitate to contact GPSA should you need any particular support. Lachlan, myself and the team are always here to help you. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.